For people who ponder religion and God, there is a question that is sometimes particularly troubling. Why do bad things happen to good people? We're discouraged when we see someone for whom we have high regard go through serious, life-altering adversity. Where is God when people suffer, especially when they suffer greatly? That's our topic today on Craving Answers, Craving God. I'm Chuck Rathert with Aaron Miller. Aaron is the pastor of St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. So Aaron, let's get our terms and definitions straight. Paul says in Romans 3 that, quote, none is righteous. No, not one. But then there is this in Luke 23. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council and a good and righteous man. So do we have a biblical contradiction? So we, we talked about this recently, and it's good to come back to this uh, point because it, I do think it helps us understand um, how we humans relate to each other and to God. So, you, you know, the text you, the text you quoted, it, one says there's nobody who's good, and then another one describes a guy as a good guy. Um, that, that when, we, when we talk about good people, it's almost entirely relative to a certain context. And what I mean is this, is um, so, so there's not really a hard and fast definition of good. You just need to know the context that somebody's talking in. If I say, I'll give you a couple examples. If I say that Culver's has a really good burger, what I, what I personally mean is I, I like their burger compared to other fast food restaurants. I think it's the best fast food burger that I've had. There are places in the city that are burger restaurants, nice sit-down burger restaurants. I'll do a free commercial for one of my favorites, Max Local Eats. Their, their burgers blow Culver's away. C- compared to Max Local Eats, Culver's burgers are not very good. But compared to McDonald's, I think that Culver's is a fantastic burger. It's entirely relative. When I play golf – when I play golf with guys, you know, and if you've ever played golf with anybody, you'll know you say to somebody, are you a good golfer? And if they say, oh, yeah, I'm pretty good, you, they're probably not. If they're like, uh, I don't know, every once in a while I hit a good shot, those are the people you don't want to make bets with on the first tee. So if I play golf with a guy and, and, I, and he shoots a, an 80 or an 81, I'll say, that's a good round. You played really well. When I watch the professionals play on TV, you know, and they're playing these extremely difficult courses with narrow fairways and super fast greens and one of them shoots a 64 that's that's an entirely different world compared to those people me and my buddies are horrible golfers compared to each other though there's some pretty good golfers there's a guy every once in a while shooting the low 80s maybe even the high 70s and when the bible uses the word good when it talks about good people it does the same thing that we and we do this too you you know when i say when I say, oh, I've got this friend, he's a really good guy, what I mean if I describe him like that to you is probably he's nice, he's kind of funny. Uh, as far as I know, he's pretty honest. He's been a good friend to me for a while. He's a good guy. If I compare any of my friends, I shouldn't throw them under the bus, myself included, to a Mother Teresa, for instance. 
none of us are that good or noble. None of us have given up our lives to serve people who are stricken with leprosy in the Indian subcontinent. None of us have done that. So it's 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 pretty relative. And the the Bible works the same way. When the Bible describes uh, the the guy you mentioned, Joseph, there as a good guy. What it means is, like relative to other human beings, this was a good, honest, upstanding guy. But when the other text that you read says there's nobody who's good, that's not comparing us to other people. It's comparing us to God. And in light of God, there's such a huge gap. None of us are good compared to God. So if I understand you correctly, the Romans 3 reference compares men, women to God. Right. And our righteousness, whatever we perceive that to be, it doesn't even – there is no comparison. No, no God's comparison. righteousness far exceeds anything that we might think well of ourselves. Yeah. But when we talk about our neighbor, who we're supposed to love, when we talk about our neighbor, we can identify scoundrels and we can identify people who are exemplary. Sure. And, and it's okay to do that. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah, it's 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 okay to say I want to be a good neighbor, or I think my neighbor's a good guy. Keeps his lawn mowed, um, you know, grabs my mail for me when I'm out of town, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, keeps his noise down, uh, invites me over for a drink every once in a while. It's okay to say my neighbor is a good guy compared to other bad neighbors. That's a completely legitimate thing to say. But whether I'm living next door to Mother Teresa or I'm living next door to the deepest, darkest scoundrel in my neighborhood. Mother Teresa, deep, dark scoundrel, and me, compared to how good and righteous and holy God is, none of us can be described as good. And that it's even a bigger, more drastic comparison than a Culver's burger to a Max Local Eats burger. Can we apply the term civil righteousness to this comparison that we make among each other? Does that fit? Yeah, Luther talks about two kinds of righteousness. There's a righteousness before God that none of us have. There's a righteousness before each other, our neighbors, that all of us can have and should strive for, whether we're Christians or not. To to, to be righteous before God, though, is going to, and we've talked about this in the past, it's, it's going to take something besides my own effort because I'm not actually good enough to get there. I, I, it's, the gap is too wide. I'm going to need God himself to bridge that gap. I'm going to need God to be who he is, holy in God, but also to be who I am, to be a human being with a body, living in, in, living in the broken world, susceptible to sickness and death and brokenness and loneliness, to bridge the gap between who I am and who God is. And thankfully, I mean, this is Christianity 101. God's done that in the person of Jesus Christ. He's bridged that gap. So now I can be righteous and holy because I've been connected to Jesus who functions as that bridge between me and the holy God. Okay, so we've established now our definition for the term good man, good person, good woman. It is possible to use that term in its proper context. Mm -hmm. So the question then is, why do bad things happen to good people? And please, don't give me, well, it's just a mystery and we don't know and we'll never know and God's just, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and so let's move on. I need an answer to that question. People listening to us need an answer. Well, bad things happen to all of us because that's the choice we've made. That's the choice we humans have made. Going back, you know, our grandparents made the choice. Our great-great-grandparents made the choice. 
every single human being alive, going back to our original parents, Adam and Eve, made the choice when faced with the when, when faced with the choice of do you want God to be God over you or do you want to die? Every single one of us have have, have has made the choice death. Now now we complain about it. You know, we're like, I, I don't I, I don't want God to be God over me, but I don't want bad stuff to happen either. I expect him to stop the bad stuff from happening. And when he doesn't, I'm gonna complain about him. You know, either I'm gonna say, Where is God in all this? I thought he loved me, or I'm just gonna say, see, this proves this, there wasn't any God because bad stuff is happening. But at the but, but, but at, at the end of the day, when, when bad stuff happens, it's because we've willed it to happen. We've we've willingly chosen to live lives, every single one of us, Mother Teresa included, willingly chosen to live lives where we put ourselves in the place of God and then we either dispose of him or we expect him to you know, kind of fit into the story somehow as a sort of a sub-God or maybe a servant, but we want to be in charge. And as a result, the Bible insists there's skin knees and cancer and car wrecks and tidal waves and death, and it's really on us. And when bad things happen, so when bad things happen, it's because there is no good people in that first sense of the word. There's nobody who really believes and worships and wants God to be God. And as a result, this is the world that we live in. So I'm thinking of a person perhaps who is listening to us who is trying to process what we're saying here. And they can think of an exemplary person in his or her life. Let's say it's your grandma. Mm -hmm. You think about grandma and you just can't think of a single flaw. I mean, you understand that she's made mistakes and shouldn't have invested in that hedge fund last year or things like that. Yeah. But in relating to other people, just flawless. And you point to her and you say, man, that there is somebody to emulate. And then she gets a very drastic cancer and she suffers horribly. Mm -hmm. And eventually she passes away. And... I'm thinking, you know, Pastor, you could talk all day, but I just can't accept that. I just don't understand how something like that could happen to a fine person like my grandma. Yeah. How do you respond? Well, so now it's hard because now we've turned a, philosoph a philosophical conversation into a real one. If I'm having that conversation with somebody, I, I almost certainly as a pastor wouldn't say, well, she wasn't really good, and so that's why this ha this is happening, uh, because she was good on that second on that second level. She was civil good. righteous. Yeah, she was a good person. I would say so. For, so, a couple things here that that may or may not help. I, I've got two or three things to say. I'll try and say them fast. I don't want to suck up all the air in this room. But um, one is is that I think that if you talked to your grandma, that she would tell you that there are things that you don't know about her. I'm not going to mean like deep, dark secrets, but secret grudges that she's been wise enough to not articulate verbally over the years, uh, secret fears, uh, irrational fears, uh, things that she did in the past, maybe as long as 70 years ago, maybe as long as two weeks ago, that she did thoughtlessly that hurt people, maybe small hurts, but thoughtlessly, 
I think that you know we idolize other human beings, but when you get closer and closer to other human beings, um, if you allow them to speak the truth of their own lives out loud, I think we all find that we all are, again, on the second level, there are definitely good people and there are definitely bad people, but all of us have brokennesses and sin that we bring into the world. That's the first thing I would say is um, resist the temptation to, um, to, to to sanctify the memory of your grandmother just because she was a better person than the average grandmother. That, that, that's the first thing that I would say. The second thing I say is also a hard thing. I would say, okay, so let's just imagine that your grandmother really was much more kind and much more loving and selfless than other people. I'm fully prepared to believe that there are people who are much more kind and much more selfless. It's actually not just your grandma. So, so if you know, why did why did bad things happen to my grandma? Don't you dare tell me it's her own fault that she's a sinner and this happened to her. Okay, I'll back off of that. But the fact is, is that I'm a sinner. I know what I've done to my own life and the the way I've damaged my relationships. And to be honest with you, your grandmother's death is on me. I've contributed to this. I've created a world where there's sin and there's brokenness, and all of us have. There's this uh, fantastic poem, um, and uh, uh, darn if I don't remember who wrote it. It's uh, John Donne, perhaps, John Milton. Everybody's going to recognize this poem, and I can't. It just blanked out completely on who the author was. Uh, and it's got, the, it's got the famous line in there, ask not for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. And... Um, the, the the point of that poem, it's a very short poem, you should check it out and read it, is um, in the medieval and post-medieval world, you live in a town and uh, you're working in your house or you're working out in the field if you're a farm worker, and in the distance you can hear the church bell tolling in the middle of the day, and you know somebody's died. That's why they're ringing the church bell. And uh, the poet says, you know, no man's an island. Nobody lives unto themselves. When you hear that bell tolling in the village, which has announced the death of somebody that you almost certainly know, don't ask who that bell is tolling for because it's tolling for you. And what he means is, is that every death, every death is a part of me. And to some extent, I contribute to the death of every human being because I've contributed to the brokenness of the world and the rebellion of the world. And um, th- this is also true, is that, uh, you know, I- I'm going to die for my own sin, that bad things are going to happen to me because of my own sin. I, Adam, God told Adam and Eve in the garden that the day you disobey me, you will die. And now I'm disobeying. I'm a, I'm a disobedient to God person, and I'm dying. I'm also causing death to other people around me. The third thing that I would say is... Um, uh, God doesn't stand aloof from this. And we've talked about this in here before too. God doesn't stand aloof from this. God himself participates in this. Uh, ba- stuff happens to people that's bad. God is not sitting up there in the safety of you know, his, uh, his uh, family room watching what happens to us on TV saying, dang, that's rough what they're going through. Maybe I ought to flip it off or change the channel. I don't want to watch that bad stuff anymore. Or even worse, just watching it and kind of enjoying it. No, God actually makes himself a human being to come here and live with us so he can experience all these bad things too. God himself 
in fact, we, we can argue that God himself, so, so my grandma, when she passes away, that's something bad happening to a good person, but good only in the second sense of the word. When God himself becomes a human being, Jesus of Nazareth, and dies on the cross, that's the only time in human history that something bad has happened to a good person and a good person in both senses of the word, good before God and good before human beings, good before neighbors. John Dunn, is that? John Dunn, okay, I was right the first time. I shouldn't have, I should have just gone with it and pretended like I knew what I was talking about. I had about. to look it up. Thank you. I didn't know that. Um, so where is, when people say, where is God in all this? I think maybe you just answered that question. But for people who think that, wow, God abandoned my grandma. She got cancer and she died. Hmm. And after living a long and glorious life, God left her behind. How do you respond to that? Well, that's, I mean, this is the most beautiful thing about Christianity is that death is not something that God has not participated in or experienced. Loneliness is not something that God hasn't experienced. Physical pain, emotional pain, mental pain, psychological pain, relational pain. These are not things that God himself has not experienced. In fact, Christians insist, the Bible insists, that the apex of God's godness, if you will, is the moment when he's hanging lifeless from a cross. That's when he is experiencing the utmost of his glory. And that that, ex- that experience on the cross where God manages to join together his life, his holiness, his righteousness with human death and sinfulness and brokenness that's the the turning point of human history it's the turning point of of it's the place where all the evil in the world and all the holiness of god meet so what i'm saying is this is that when you're suffering when your grandmother is suffering she is never closer to god than she is in that moment she, she that you, you know god is some people think that's hard to they feel like you're Twisting their arm right now, like that's that's hard to accept. Uh, so, so the, what, what are the alternatives then? The alternatives, what, what would they be? That God is all about ease and pleasure and good health sure. and well. Uh, so my my grandma deserved to go to glory, carried by angels out of a an essentially pain-free existence. And what she didn't deserve was cancer, which not only killed her, but caused her to suffer in the weeks in advance of her death. Yeah, that's an alternative, I think. Oh, so, okay, so philosophical answer, because I know we're not talking about your grandmother and you're not grieving over your grandmother right now, although I'm sure you have in the past. So I'm going to give you a philosophical answer real quick. This is heartless. I would not say to anybody, this to anybody who's struggling, but I would work my way easily to this point. We don't have the weeks that it takes to live with somebody who's going through grief to do that. We only have a few minutes. So let me just jump in there. Okay, I'm not going to debate whether your grandmother deserved a kind, easy death, but let's say that she did. There is somebody who deserved an easy death even more. There's somebody who deserved not to die, period, and that person was Jesus of Nazareth. 
and he went through the most brutal, horrible death in every sense of the word. And if Jesus could do it, if, if, if it happened to Jesus, we shouldn't be surprised that it happens to us. In fact, it happens to Jesus because it has happened to us. Because we do die, Jesus has decided that he will experience death too in order to redeem our deaths. The Christian life, because of that, is not one of ease. It's one of suffering. Because the heart of God is his own suffering. God's passion for his son finds its locus and meaning in his son's willingness to die for those who were made in his image. We shouldn't be surprised at all if the Christian life involves suffering as well. It's 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 just it's going to be the name of the game. And and my key point I'm going to keep on coming back to is this: is that suffering, far from being a sign that God is absent or not caring or doesn't exist or is powerless to stop it, suffering of a Christian is a sign that he is active and at work and is doing something big and powerful. Even the death of a Christian is a sign that God's about to do something big and powerful and bold and beautiful. The resurrection of the dead, which God promises he's going to accomplish through his son, Jesus Christ, can only happen if there are the dead to be resurrected. It's our fault as humans that there is such a thing as death. But God is determined to take that evil and that brokenness and make it good. And that's what he's doing in the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. In chapter 13 of John's gospel, he quotes Jesus as saying, in the world you will have, and then let's do a fill in the blank. So if you're going to be a Christian and you're looking forward to your life in Christ, and back in John's day, there were lots of people who were secular or pagan or whatever who were coming into the church Fill in the blank, and Jesus fills it in this way. In the world, you will have tribulation. Mm, Yeah. So if you are sort of anticipating, you will have joy and peace and love and all those things. Nope, it's tribulation. It's kind of disheartening, isn't it? It can be. I mean, nobody, I I think it would be completely... It would complete. It would be completely counter to the heart of God to say, "Well, so yeah, tribulation. It comes. You know, it's a part of God's plan to unite the world to Himself through the suffering of His Son Jesus. And if you've been connected to Jesus, that means you're going to suffer like Jesus did. So be happy. Everything's okay. That would be cold and heartless. It would be the same sort of cold and heartlessness that would describe the cross of Jesus as." this happy, perky, joyful event. It's not. It's deeply, deeply broken. And all human pain and suffering, especially death, is deeply dehumanizing and broken and painful for everybody involved. It strips people of their humanity. It strips families and friends of their framework of meaning that you know you build your lives around people close to you, and then it's taken away. It's, it's horrible, and yet at the same time, like the cross, which is the most horrible event in the history of the universe, and simultaneously the most beautiful, glorious event in the, in the history of the universe, like the cross, the suffering of Christians is a good and beautiful and glorious thing. Can be. I mean, so, you know, you, you mentioned that the Jesus doesn't men- mention, uh, you know, joy and uh, what a peace and, and all those things. Those things are not uh, exclusive mutually exclusive of suffering. You can have both of those things. It doesn't take away the pain of the suffering, 
but it does mean that suffering has purpose and meaning that God is using it. And you can find joy and hope and meaning even in the midst of brokenness and suffering. In our worldly experience in general, when we do good things, we enjoy rewards. And when we do bad things, we suffer consequences. That's the way the world works pretty much. Every once in a while, it's a little different and it's kind of an eyebrow raising, how, how did that happen? But that's generally the way it works. And whether we want to admit it or not, I think most of us sort of apply that same mechanism to being a Christian. Right. Uh, The TV preachers take advantage of this. They are pretty much trying to sell us on the idea that be good, um, do Christian things, be exemplary, and God will reward you. This for that. Uh, What's your take on uh, a lot of the media preaching that we hear, whether it's on television or radio or podcasts, that suggests that the kingdom works pretty much the way the the world works? Do good, receive rewards, do bad, receive consequences. Well, it's more... It's more karma than it is grace. You know, karma. So karma is a, a principle in many Eastern religions, which says whatever you do good will come back to you as good, and whatever you do bad will come back to you as bad. And there's a certain sort of like reality to that. That you, you know, if I if I drink to excess, I'm going to have liver problems. There's just a cause and effect thing there. Christianity insists, though, it doesn't insist that there aren't effects to causes. It doesn't insist that there's not uh, consequences to bad behavior or sinfulness. But the, the, the overriding dominating principle of Christianity is grace. You cannot earn favor by doing anything, earn God's favor by doing anything. He freely offers it to you. So, you can't tithe enough money to make God happy with you. He's happy with you no matter what. We tithe because he is happy with us, not to, not to make him happy with us. I, I have conversations with my wife because she is my wife, not to make her my wife. There's a grace element to that. She has accepted me and chosen me and put herself into a covenant relationship with me purely out of grace. And so I have to live in that. My love for her has to revolve and to to spring from and be fueled by the grace that she's shown me in loving me and choosing me. So there's that. Um, Christianity works on grace. The the other thing is this, is that those ministries, you know, the TV ministry, the televangelism ministry, even just ordinary non-media ministries, which insist that if you do good things, God will do good things for you. God not only will do things, but he owes you. That's the response that he has promised you in Scripture, that you trigger it, and he's got to do it. He's got to treat you well. Yeah, that's not the point I was going to make, but that's a really good point. That that sort of vision of who God is provides a mechanism for putting God into our service, for saying, if I push the right buttons on this computer— I can get the God program to pop up and do what I want it to do. If I put in the right amount of change and hit the correct button on this vending machine, it owes me a Diet Pepsi. And to treat God like that goes against who God is by nature. He is the creator and we are the created. We are always in his debt. 
We are always in his debt, which by the way, this is what we hate about God, which is why we willingly, I said, to go back to what I said earlier, we willingly choose suffering and death over submitting to a God who demands absolute submission. So it's again, it's really our fault. But so that's a great point, Chuck. I wasn't going to make that point, but that's that's a super terrific one. What I was going to say is this: is that that vision of what life looks like as a Christian flies right in the face again of the cross. For Jesus to be the perfect person, to never do anything wrong, to be absolutely holy, and what did, what what did it get him? It got him executed by the Roman government. It got him executed for our sins. For, 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 for us to say, well, okay, yeah, so for Jesus, okay, that's one thing. But me, I can actually make God give me good things by being good. It's just, it's not the way, it's not the way the heart of the cross is. It's not the way the cross is. The cross insists that righteousness and holiness lead to, the word that you quoted from Jesus and John, lead to tribulation. It's That's the way it works. But it's a tribulation which is somehow mysteriously bringing about the glory of the resurrection. Our sufferings, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he's talking about himself here, but I think it works for us as well, as for those of you who are Christians, that he says, in my body I carry about all day long the sufferings of Jesus so that I may also be in a manifestation expression of the resurrection power of Jesus. Again, the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of power of Jesus doesn't work if there's not death through which it can work. And somehow we, we humans have rebelled against God and chosen death, and he's decided, I'm bigger than this. I can actually use the death which you guys have brought into the world to rescue the whole world. Decided to die himself, allow those of us who believe in Jesus to participate in this, not, 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 not in any way that we're bringing about the salvation of the world. It's Jesus' death that does that. But when I carry about in my body suffering, maybe it's the suffering of you know, not being rewarded at work for a good job done. Maybe it's the suffering of getting a terminal illness and dying a painful, slow death. But when I do that in the name of Jesus, I am actually bringing the cross of Jesus into the world of my family and friends, my own world, my neighbors, and I'm making the the, the crucifixion power of Jesus and thus the resurrection power of Jesus real. Don't short circuit that, Christians. By insisting that if I believe in Jesus, my life is going to be good and happy. The goodness and happiness of having plenty of money and great health and everything going well does not lead to the glory that only the sufferings of the cross of Jesus Christ can provide. Don't shirk it, don't, don't shirk, don't short circuit that. Don't waste your sufferings. Let them lead you and others around you to Jesus. So I know that you teach a religions course, world religion, something like that, mm-hmm, at yeah. the local community college. And that means that you're encountering people who are in their 20s, mostly, I guess, early 20s, um, who are not Christians, who have kind of an open view on religion. And I know that you don't proselytize there. You teach what you teach. But you do get to have conversations with people who sometimes ask questions. Right. So my point is, if you find yourself, whether it's at the community college or, you know, over coffee somewhere here in Glen Carbon, and the opportunity comes to, how do I say it, make a pitch for what you believe, for Christianity. Now, if you're the car salesman, you're going to 
you're going to talk about how great the car is. You're not going to say, well, this car right. doesn't get very good gas mileage. And yeah. You're going to have to replace the brakes at 40,000 miles. If you're an insurance salesman, you don't say, you know, we really charge way too much for this and the benefits are minimal. You're not going to say things like that. But you're stuck with this. In Matthew 11, Jesus talking about John the Baptist says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John. You want to see a good man? Jesus has given you one, John the Baptist. Then, of course, we know as we read on in the gospel account that as John goes his way and Jesus goes his way, John winds up in prison, in Herod's prison for, who knows, maybe a year, maybe two, right. suffering in prison. And then Herod gets himself entrapped and winds up having to cut off his head to, right. to appease his evil wife, evil Herod, evil Herod, evil wife. This is what happens to the greatest man ever to be born of women? How do you explain that to your uh, friend that you're talking to over coffee? Well, I, I would say, yeah, it happens to all of us. Every single one of us is going to end up dying some sort of death, some more painful honestly, than John the Baptist. Uh, you know, if, you, if you're given the choice of, I, I don't know, this is a stupid game to play, I apologize, but if you're given the choice of, let's say, dying of brain cancer slowly over the course of three years, slowly losing your ability to walk, to feed yourself, to control your bodily functions, and then dying a very, very dehumanizing death, or to be beheaded, which one would you choose? I, that's not, it's a stupid game to play. I apologize. My point is this, is that all of us die in the end. No, nobody escapes this. To be like, well, I want a religion that's going to make me happy. Well, what do you mean? You know, to, to not die? That's not possible. That's, this is the life we've chosen for ourselves. We're all going to die. In the end, God kills all of us. He told us in the Garden of Eden, if you if you disobey me, you will die. And now it happens. You just can't escape it. Now, the question is this. Do you want to die meaninglessly? Or do you want to know? Do you want to die knowing that your death is going to lead to glory? That's your choice. And if, if there is no God, if Jesus, his death is meaningless and the resurrection wasn't real, then we're all just going to die like animals, hopelessly someday. If there is a God... And he's decided to embody himself in Jesus of Nazareth. And that man, Jesus of Nazareth, that God man has died and risen from the dead. Then there is hope and purpose in death. In fact, death becomes incredibly, incredibly meaningful because it's we, we share that experience with God himself. Jesus has died. So th that's, that's the thing I would say. And by the way, too, this is going to be extremely countercultural when I say these sorts of things. Because what all of my students, actually what every member of my church, actually what I myself believe is more, my religion tends to be more American dream than it does Christianity with its own eschatology, doctrine of the end things. <laughs> you just opened another Pandora's box that maybe we'll have to talk about down the road someday. Sure. But the American dream, what's the American dream? The American dream says you work hard, you study, you be good to your neighbors, you vote, keep your, mar keep your yard mown. And, and then someday you're going to be happy and relaxing and, you know, uh, sipping tasty beverages on a porch overlooking the beach after getting done playing 18 holes of golf at a championship golf course 
and then you go out to eat with your you, you know with, with with your lovely spouse to a nice dinner. Now that's the way. That's the way. Civil right? righteousness should be repaid. Yes, and what does that do? That focuses on ourselves. It doubles us down on our own idols. It promises us happiness that can't deliver. You know, maybe you do get to go live, you know, by the beach and get to play golf. That's going to end. You cannot escape death. The American dream never talks about death. That's the interesting thing. Work hard and you'll be happy. And nobody ever says, well, then, of course, you do die. Christianity is the only, uh, you know, is Christianity is the way to deal with that death. And I, so I would encourage my students, like, you know, you, you're coming here to school. You're working hard. You don't really care about the class, but you need the credits because you need the degree, which you also don't really care about because you need the job, which you're not really going to care about because you, you need to get the money, which you do care about. And I'm just telling you, it's a meaningless way to live. How do you feel about, finally, the way we've answered the question? It's a very common question. I'm sure you've heard it before, one way or another. Why do bad things happen right. to good people? How did, do, how did we do? Well, we did horrible, to be honest <laughs> with you. Because it's, it's, it's a question that can't be answered philosophically in a lifetime of conversations. It just can't. It's, it has to be answered, let alone in, in 30 minutes. The, the the only answer to that question, why do good things happen to bad people, the only way you're going to get a real answer to that is in relationship with God. It has to happen in relationship. It has to be an experience of knowing that all of my suffering is known and loved and experienced in real time by God himself through Jesus of Nazareth, and that when I suffer, it's inevitable. You are going to suffer. But when I suffer, I suffer knowing that God is with me not patting me on the head saying there, there, but by feeling all that pain with me. I, I, you know, you and I, we, we can't talk about that enough to get somebody through that actual experience. But what we can do is maybe point people to the Jesus who will walk with them through all the bad things in their life and assure them that he is the one good person and that, that if we're united to him, he is going to make all things new. He is going to make all things well. Friend, you've been listening to Craving Answers, Craving God, a podcast that originates from St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. We welcome your questions and comments. You can send them to me at this email address, chuckrathert at stjamesglencarbon.org. For Pastor Aaron Miller and our production manager, Larry O'Leary, I'm Chuck Rathert.